For the sake of you Gentiles, in the, in the Greek, there's actually a definite article there. The Gentiles. So he's speaking about a very, very distinct class of people. He's not speaking about just anybody. And, and the Gentiles at that time would have practiced idolatry. They would have been ignorant of God. They would basically have been pagan. So he's talking about people who are not in the church, who are not part of the Jewish believing church, if you like, at that particular time. Okay? And, he, and just interesting enough, he, he, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But remember, he, he was in prison you can, in, in Acts 21 and, and 25, where he was in prison because of Jewish charges that led to his arrest. It was the Jews who had a problem. He was arrested, so he did, but he doesn't call himself a prisoner of the Jews. He was imprisoned in Rome by Roman authorities, but he doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome. And then he also, in Acts 25, he appealed to Caesar, and Caesar said, sorry, I can't help you. And so he doesn't call himself a prisoner of Caesar. He says, I am a, slave, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Right? He's, he's basically pinning it on Christ. He's saying, Christ has put me here. I am his prisoner, which is quite an interesting thing. So literally, okay, he is in prison. Why? If you go into Acts, he's in prison because he decided he was going to preach to the Gentiles. He was going to and say, no, no, it's not just a Jewish church. This is a Gentile church as well. But the reason he is a, a, a prisoner of Jesus is, he, is this idea of a bond slave. So a bond slave was someone who willingly chose to serve a master because out of loyalty for what they had done. So Jesus is figurative. He's saying, I'm in prison because I'm preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, which the Jews don't like, and I have, in, I have bonded myself to Christ. I am a slave to Christ. So the implication is that if he had remained a Jewish Christian, in other words, his mission to, was only to the Jews, he wouldn't have been a judge. He wouldn't have been in jail. He, and, or if he was willing to keep the Gentiles as outsiders, he wouldn't have been in jail. But he's in jail because he's decided to step outside and, and preach to the Gentiles. And so perhaps it's, it's this implication of him being in jail because he decided to preach, or because he decided to bond himself to Christ and to preach to Gentiles. Perhaps he's going, hmm... Let me talk a little bit about why this is worth going to jail for. Let me just emphasize. And that's, that's something I want to keep in your mind. Like, what, what, is, what is worth us going to jail for for Christ? Like, what are, we, what are we prepared to do to be bonded, to be a bond slave to Christ? What are we prepared to do? As individuals, but as a church as well, is possibly part of the, of the challenge. Okay, so Paul. Oh, okay, so Paul talks about if you read in um, verse two. Hang on, let me just. So Paul talks about in verse two. Um, he says, "Surely, uh, actually, go to verse three. Oh, okay, so verse two. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery known to me by revelation, as I've already uh, written briefly." So in, in Ephesians, Paul talks about three mysteries. The one mystery he, 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 he spoke about in Ephesians 1, 9-10, the mystery of God's will purposed in Christ. Okay, the, the, the way in which uh, we are reconciled to God through Christ is the mystery of the ages, essentially. 
The second mystery is this one we're going to talk today. This idea of the Gentiles becoming fellow heirs with the Jews in Christ. Is this next mystery that he talks about. And then the third mystery is the one that will, that will be dealt with um, in Ephesians 5. The mystery of marital living and the church's marriage to Christ. The mystery of how those uh, work together. So that's a three, the, the, the three mysteries that he deals with. So in, in, um, in verse 2, he talks about this idea of... of uh, so surely you, so again the Gentiles, you have heard about the administration of God's grace. The word there speaks about someone who's a steward. So a steward is someone who manages the business on behalf of someone else. So the idea is, for Paul, that the Gentiles will be deprived of God's grace if he fails in his task as a steward of God's grace. If he fails in bringing God's grace uh, to the Gentiles, they will be deprived of it. So the idea of stewardship is also applicable to us as a church. If we fail in our mission, many outsiders will be deprived of the gospel. Many will be deprived of experiencing the grace of God in their lives. So he's basically saying, let's dare not take this, this idea of reconciliation lightly. And going back to my original question, what is worth being jailed for? Like how far are we prepared to steward this idea of reconciliation of grace. What is it going to cost us? What are we prepared to sacrifice in bringing people into the kingdom of God, making people uh, part of God's household? Like, what are we prepared to do? And, 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 I, and I don't have answers for that necessarily, but it's something we need to sort of deposit in our mind. Because as we form this church, we can either form it along, you know, the, the whatever traditional lines, and I'm not taking uh, any criticism of traditional churches, but we could just do it like it's always been done. Or we could say, no, we're going to do something radically different and alternative, but there's going to be cost, there's going to be sacrifice. Alright, so he introduces this, this mystery. Then verse 4 he says, in reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, verse 5 then, which was not made known to people in other generations and it is now being revealed by the Spirit of God to holy apostles and prophets in other words in the way it's being revealed to him now. Now what's interesting about the word mystery is it's actually just a transliteration of the Greek word mysterion. It's not actually a translation. It's just a you know, transliteration sounds similar you just write it down I think that's what it is. Right? I told you my grandma's not So the word the English word mystery mean, usually means something that's incomprehensible beyond understanding and knowable. So I looked up, I thought, well, what's like one of the big mysteries in science? It's something called dark matter. Okay, I'm going to read it like Dark matter is a hypo hypothetical form. So it's hypothetical, I don't really know, okay, of matter thought to account for approximately 85% of the matter in the universe. Like, really? Dark matter? 85%? Look at that, what's that? Now, composed of particles, listen to this, that do not absorb, reflect, or emit light. So 85% of our universe is contained matter, hypothetically, that cannot absorb, reflect, or emit light, okay? Um, and cannot be detected by observing electromagnetic, electromagnetic radiation, I don't know what that means. Dark matter is material that cannot be seen directly. So 85% of our universe is hypothetically made up of something that we cannot see directly. Okay, that's a mystery. That's what it means. Incomprehensible, beyond understanding. That's a mystery. Okay? So when Paul is using the word mystery, the, the, the way it should be translated is a sacred secret, a divine secret. 
That is the, the better translation, the more literal. It's a sacred secret. A secret is something that is known by someone, in this case God, but is unknown to others. So the immediate question is, like, what is the sacred secret that would not be made to other generations? Like, is it, did God never intend the Gentiles to be saved? No, that's not the secret. So in, old, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, mostly Isaiah 11, 49, 54, 60, Christ is, uh, Isaiah prof- prophesies that Christ will come to the Gentiles, that a Messiah will come to the Gentiles, um, and that they would be redeemed by this Messiah, Hosea uh, 1, Amos 9. And that the, the Gentiles will receive the Holy Spirit. So Joel 2. So the, the Gentiles are definitely in God's plan. But there's something else that Paul says is deeper than this. And that you find in verse 6. It says this. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So we have these prophecies that talk about the salvation and the receiving of the Holy Spirit by the Gentiles. But now the idea Paul is re-emphasizing is this, well, possibly going deeper, is that reconciliation is not just about the, 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 the salvation and the coming in through grace of the outsider, but it's actually this idea that you are one body with each other. Now this, this, this is what one of these commentators said. The idea of including Gentiles in one body with Jews was the spiritual equivalent of saying that lepers were no longer to be isolated, that they were now perfectly free to intermingle and associate with everyone else as normal members of society. That would have been what the Jews would have felt when they heard Paul saying this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So, and then they go and say, historically, Judaism considered their spiritual separation from Gentiles as so unchanging and so right that the thought of total equality before God was inconceivable and a little short of blasphemy. They never ever considered that the Gentile would be an equal footing, uh, equal footing before God. Remember, they're the pagan ones. They're the, the idolatrous ones. They're the ones who don't. They are seen as being on equal footing. And what's so interesting for me about when you... When you other people spiritually, where you, where you see them at the very essence of their being as someone else or as something else, what you then can do in the name of that, what you, what you then can do. So once you, once you do this, it's easier to cre- create division between people, right? Once you say that someone is spiritually or biblically different to you, then you can create division. And that's exactly what happened with the party, right? Like you speak to... To Chantal, and she's often spoken about this idea that she works at the as a professor of theology at Stellenbosch, which is the very place that that theological department is the very place that established the biblical rationale for people of color being less than. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I thought about this book I've been, that I've read. It's called King Leopold's Ghost. It's a, it's a it's a it's a fascinating book. It's a brilliant read, but it's terrifying in what it points out. And I want to read something to you. Just in terms of how, when you start to other people, what it can lead to in terms of... And there's much worse stuff. There was another passage I was going to read you, and I thought, no, I can't. It would be so triggering to some to people who've, who've experienced violence. But, but this, is, this is bad enough. Okay? So this is about... I just want to see if I can find the date. But this is around about 100 years ago. Okay? Um... Okay, so he, so he talks about this idea of, of 
um, the fascination that Europeans had with Africa, but the fascination that they had of them in a, in a derogatory sense, as a designated sense. And he says this, he says, um, this is the author, he says, the most extraordinary tableau, however, was the living one. 267 black men, men, women, and children imported from the Congo. So brought to Belgium. With great fanfare, they were brought by, okay, by, by train to Brussels, whatever it was, and then marched across the center of the city to take the tram. There in the park, they were installed in three specially constructed villages. A river village, a forest village, and a civilized village. A pair of pygmies rounded out the show. Means a little people, right? The uncivilized Africans of the first two villages used tools, drums, and cooking pots from the home. From their home. They danced and paddled their dugout canoes around a pond. Okay, these are human beings. During the day, they were on exhibit in authentic bamboo African huts with overhanging thatched roofs. European men, hoping to see the fabled bare breasts, of Africans went away disappointed. However, for the women were made to wear cotton dressing gowns while at the fair. This idea that, you know, you've got to dress Europeans and so forth. Clothing, a local magazine observed, was after all the first sign of civilization. In a rare show of interest in her husband's Congo projects, Queen Maria Henriette and her entourage came to look at the Congolese, Leopold's dream made flesh. When the king was told that some of the Africans were suffering indigestion, listen to this, because of the candy given them by the public, he ordered up the equivalent of a zoo's don't feed the animal sign. The placard said, the blacks are fed by the organizing committee. And then we go, ah, oh, that's a hundred years ago. It was pretty shit those days, right? And that was a problem. Listen to this. This is a reference to Africa, and in this in this quote, the Europeans are the gardeners, and Africa is the jungle. Listen to this quote. And the jungle could invade the garden, and the gardeners should take care of it. The jungle has a strong growth capacity. And the wall will never be high enough in order to protect the garden. The gardeners have to go to the jungle. Okay, so let me read it again. The Europeans are the gardeners in this quote, and the jungle is Africa. And the jungle and Africa could invade the garden, Europe, and the gardeners, the Europeans, should take care of the garden, Europe. The jungle, the Africans, has a strong growth capacity, and the wall, whatever this wall is, will never be high enough in order to protect Europe. So the Europeans must go to the jungle. You know who said this? Joseph Borrell, the Minister of Foreign Affairs for the EU, EU a few years ago, said that. Nothing has changed in This idea that there are people that if you can justify that they're different to you, however you justify it, you can start saying things. The progressive nature of the revelation is that the Gentiles are not only saved, but are on equal footing, on the same footing as the Jews. They together share fully all the benefits of the gospel. 
So it's not reconciliation is more, you know, it, it, uh, reconciliation is more, that it's more than just bringing people to Christ so that they can experience the grace. It's actually a positional situation. People are equal before Christ. There's no hierarchy that exists when you're in the church and in the kingdom of God. Christ recreates amongst believers an absolutely new society. An absolutely new society. Radically different. And that's what we start seeing in Acts. A radically different society. A community that is different. And he empowers this practical unity when Christians realize and live by the positional unity they already have in Christ. So when we realize that in Christ we are all equal, it changes the way we work on unity. It changes the way we embrace each other. It changes the way we see each other. The purpose of this sacred secret is that God unites what has been separated by history and culture. So, he's saying he, this, this new society defies the separations of history and culture. It says, I want, to, I want to be away with what our history has told us about who we are and where we can live and how we can marry and and I want to do away with the, with the cultural stuff that has divided um, us over so many centuries. So any divisions that exist in the past between race, culture, gender, class, nationalities, are sort of put under a microscope by this theology of unity, where everything is questioned. We go, is this a, is this a legitimate division? Is this a legitimate separation? And I mean, I don't know if there are any legitimate divisional separations. I mean, that's part of the, the, the exercise, right, is to ask these questions. Then there's also this idea of one body. This idea of, of, of juxtaposing community with individualism. Because much of, of, of the inequality and the poverty and the oppression, the division we see in this world is because of radical individualism. This idea that you, you pursue... The, the, the free market is, is based on this idea of individualism. Like, your economic... Prosperity is based on you as an individual pursuing freely, it doesn't matter what the cost, so that you can be economically secure or economically wealthy. And it's, it's at the heart of capitalism. It's at the heart of capitalism, this idea of individualism. And, and, and there's this idea of, hang on, we one body. So now if we one body in a community, and, and, and someone in the community is, is less well off than someone else, like the individualism basically almost suggests that, well, you know, they must work harder. <laughs> you know, they must take the opportunities that are afforded them. They mustn't be so lazy, you know. And this is challenging the idea of, of what it means to live in a world which is so geared towards self-interest and self-propagation and all the self-words. So that is what we've been called to. This positional equality that undermines the inequality that individualism and division creates. But then he goes on, he says this unity amongst believers is more than just in, about the internal existence of the church. So we go to, I'm going to switch now to verse 9. In verse, verse 7 and 8, he, he sort of repeats more or less what he said a little bit earlier, so that's why I want to go to verse 9. And to make plain to everyone the administration, so the stewardship of this mystery, the sacred secret, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through who? Through the church. 
the manifold wisdom of God. What is the manifold wisdom of God? That we are all before God as believers equal, of equal footing. Must be made known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So we, what we have here is the concept of the, the church as a witness or steward of this unity to the realms in the heavens. It's this idea that we are now stewards of this unity. We now have this cosmic impact that is sometimes difficult to understand. And, and so nowhere else is this idea of, of the realms in the heavens appeared elsewhere in the New Testament other than Ephesians. And there are two main explanations as to what this idea of, of where it says there, um, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rules of authority in the heavenly realms. There are two basic explanations to this. One is the church reveals God's wisdom to all evil powers to bring about either the repentance, in which they turn away from the evil, their defeat, in other words, the evil is obviously conquered, or then to marvel, go, oh my word, who is this that is able to bring? And, and, and we see this in Ephesians 6, which is, I think I'm also preaching on at some point, this evil in the spiritual realms. Um, this idea that the, where, you know, Ephesians 6 is this not, you know, your, your, your fight's not against flesh and blood, but about the, you know, the, the things in the, in the heavenly realms. So there's this idea that, that the evil we see is not just people doing bad stuff. It's, it's empowered and propelled by something that is, that is sort of under the surface, but it's so evil and so powerful and so insidious that it creeps into everything, not only into the, into the human heart, but actually creeps into the physical existence of the earth. The Romans talks about how the, how the earth groans under oppression. So that's, that, what, that's the one, when we talk about the, the rulers and authorities of heaven and realms, it's this, this, this insidious evil that exists. And the other the one is this idea of the church teaches God's wisdom to human institutions or structures to transform their actions. So this idea of of, of the church having an impact at a systemic level. The people of the church having an impact at changing systems and institutions that do what? That oppress the outsider. That we, because if we're not going to do, who else is going to do it? The politicians are certainly not doing it. Okay, they're certainly not doing it. And there's this idea that, that in the, the this idea that the, the, the heavenly realms refers to this thing that there are, there are systems that are hist largely historical, whether it be you know 10 years, 15 years, or 100 years, that impact the present. And it's very difficult to change systems. I mean, you know in your own life, if you think about things in your own home, right, there are certain systems that operate there that are very difficult to change. Like, if you don't start early telling your kids to take their dishes, to the kitchen, that system will stay. And it's good. You can say whatever you like. If you have not nipped that system in the boat, those dishes will stay. And that's a silly example, but there's systems all over the place, from the dishes in the thing to you know packing the dishwasher to etc. Now, you know, this is on a much bigger level. We're talking about a, a, a societal level these systems. It's this idea of do we as a church just believe? Yeah, you know, this whole idea of I think we had a community meeting on on Friday nights where we had all the life group leaders right? and I think Karen was talking about this idea this traditional separation of the church and state you know the church is not talking about politics how can you not talk about politics when the consequences of the system are in your very church when there are people that are poor oppressed alienated jailed I mean how can you not how can you just say no it's got nothing to do with us it's got everything to do with us Politics is at the center of our church. It has to be, because the systems that are created by human beings to oppress other human beings are the same human beings that are sitting in our church. 
And next week is the Alpha weekend and or Alpha Saturday. And on Sunday, we're inviting all those people to come into this church. There are massively diverse backgrounds there. Massively diverse backgrounds. And, and some of those people are a consequence of living as a consequence of a system that is unable to care for them. Are we going to say that that's got nothing to do with us? It's got everything to do with us. So, irrespective of how you understand this idea of the, the heavenly realms and the rulers, the, the, the idea is that the United Church has an unparalleled importance in bringing, by, bringing about God's kingdom in this world. That is it. It's, a, it's the church bringing the manifold wisdom of God to the world so that his kingdom can be extended. One of, the, uh, one of the, the scholars put it this way. The very existence of the gathered body of believer reconciled to God and to each other in Christ makes known this wisdom to the world. So they talk about this idea that local churches should be functional outposts of God's kingdom. Functional means it's actually happening. It's practical. We can actually see the reconciliation and the and the and the, the, the positional equality that actually brings about systemic change or brings about um, care and love, compassion. This is the functional outpost of what's happening. It, it, another way to put it is it's a working prototype of God's new earth community. A working prototype. You know what a prototype is? Someone looks at it and goes, This is it, this thing works. <clears throat> And then one another guy talked about a lighthouse to the cosmic powers. It's this idea of that as this, this functional outpost of God's kingdom radically practices reconciliation and, and, and radically understands that we're all equal people, something happens in the cosmic space. A light goes into the darkness in the, in, in the cosmic battles that we don't understand. We get windows of it in scripture, but we don't understand. So where we've gone now is we've almost gone like full circle. It started with reconciliation, which uh, the message from last week. And then the reconciliation is what Justin was saying. It's not just assimilation and absorption. It's a genuine, like, um, it, it, it's, it's a genuine new thing that happens. So we have reconciliation. And then Paul moves us to one step further. He says, and it's equal footing. We're all equal. And then he takes it one step further. And he says that creates unity. This theology of unity, that we're all equal, so we unify. And then he takes it one step further. It's the local church's job to model this. Why? So that God's manifold wisdom will be made known in the world, which does what? Brings about cosmic re reconciliation. So we start with reconciliation, then right round to cosmic reconciliation. That is God's plan. And where does that little local church have a role to play in the cosmic reconciliation? Of his kingdom, not just like on a very like simplistic level. We get to play a role in the changing of the heavenly realms. And I'm like, I sort of wonder, have we ever seen a church do that? Like, are we, if I stuck up your, I mean, maybe some of you have. If I said, do you, are you, have you ever been a part of a church where have you read, we've read about these churches and these movements in history, you know, where there was this massive sweeping of God's work, it was like change. I don't know if we have modern day equivalents of that. That you can actually, as a church, have an impact on cosmic reconciliation. So what does this mean practically? Let's go to verse 12. It says that in him, 
which is Christ, and through faith in Him, that's Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So it's this idea that the wall, or the, the chasm between us and God has been removed by Christ, and we can approach Him with freedom and confidence. Which is a really interesting thing for me. So if we can approach God with freedom and confidence, and God being much higher than us, then how much more should we be able to approach each other in freedom and confidence? How much more so? And so, I think the call to us is that, I'm, I'm seeing a little bit from Justine's uh, message last week, but to interrogate regularly and disrupt whether whatever we do favors one particular group or another. That's the freedom and confidence we have. It's to stick up our hand and go, uh, uh, okay, hang on a second. I'm not sure I get this. Is, this. is this a good thing? Should we be doing this? Freedom and confidence. Why? Because of our equal position before God. That's where it comes, the position. It's this whole idea that, the, that, that your position... Your position equality brings about functional equality. So stick up your hand and go, I don't know about this. <coughs> we need to challenge divisions. Why are certain things different? Justine again put up the temple last week and, and showed the divisions. You know, are, are there the equivalents here? Maybe? maybe we don't see them, but they I don't know. We need to challenge individualism. We need to prioritize relationships. Relationship builds trust. Without relationship, you have a trust gap. So what happens is you have a rise in suspicion. So if I have a relationship with, say, Brandon, and Brandon says something, or does something, then I go, whoa, what was that? I'm not suspicious of him, because sometimes our first port of call, where there's a trust gap, where there's no relationship, you, you suspicion, well, why did they do that? Why did they say that? Hey, that was so inconsiderate. But when I, I go, hmm, I'm going to trust Brandon, because I know him. I have a relationship with him. I'm going to trust that what he said or what he did is not intended to harm or sideline me or whatever. I'm going to, and that's why we have to build relationships. And that's why we've got to, and I've been very grateful to the, to the people that have invited me into their homes. So they can get to know me, because I'm, I'm an, oh, I'll get to this just now. <laughs> but this idea that, that if you get to know me and I get to know you, when I say something from the front, you go, yeah, that's sound right, but I know his heart, you know. So we need a prioritize relationship. This I learned from, um, again, the community meeting on, uh, on Friday night. Challenge normative judgments. I had to ask what a normative judgment Anyway, so now this is what I think. Okay. So it's judgments based on what we believe is the norm. Alright. So, the norm is Often in churches, married with children. That's the norm. If you're not married with children, then there's something wrong. You need to aspire to that. Um, And that's the norm. And so what sometimes we do is we say things based on the norm. So if you're single, like, haven't you found someone yet? You don't have kids, like, have you thought about, you know, and you start chucking in solutions. So, you know, that sort of idea. So we've got to like go, okay, hang on a second. What are the norms that, that have been sort of passed down to us? So in, in the evangelical church, the primacy of marriage is definitely something that's been passed down to us. Like if you're not married, like there's something up. But in the New Testament, marriage is definitely not uh, put on that. In the Old Testament, marriage, and we spoke about this when, when we, uh, I can remember because I did the sermon on blessing, like it was very much about 
marriage and family was the most important thing in the Old Testament. That was it, because it was where, you, where the property was located, it was inheritance to take care. In, in, the, in the New Testament, it's not that at all. It's actually spiritual brothers and sisters. And in fact, eschatologically, there is no marriage in, in heaven. We're all going to be saved. You know that. That's it. So, the idea that marriage is prime is, and that's the norm. Another norm is that if you, you know, we all should have a home, but if you haven't got a home, you've done something wrong. This is what came up on, you know, you must be lazy. You know, or you, you know, you, you, you I don't know, you were jailed. I don't know. You, and we just make up this stuff. And so it's this idea of realizing, it's, it's saying, okay, so what are the things that have been passed down to me that I have been told are normal? And to interrogate that, I was like, is it really normal? Or was it just my normal? And so what happens then is when we start to do that, we start to, we start to be more cognizant of what we say around people or how we respond to the norm that is different to ours. And, and that's what I was going to say earlier. Like, I'm the worst at this. Like, my kids believe I'm the most racist, sexist person. Because okay, I'm always sprouting out nonsense. Because of my normative history, you know what I mean? Like, I just, sh- just set things up. Now, if you know my heart, hopefully you'll go, he didn't intend that. Okay? But now, this is where it gets interesting. So, say now I sprout out something, sexist, racist, whatever the case may be, and you come to me, remember freedom and confidence. Now, what often happens is, I get offended by you pointing that out to me. That's a problem. Because that's what happened. And the reason I'm offended, I'm not necessarily offended by the fact that you pointed it out to me. I'm more offended by the fact that you think I'm that type of person. Oh, yeah. All right, meet it that way. <clears throat> Maybe I didn't. But we've, we've got to get to this point where we go, okay, hang on a second. We, we have freedom and confidence to go, hey, Rowan, what you said then, or what you did then hurt me, or it made me feel this way or that way. Now, my response should actually be, sure, okay. Help me understand what it is that I said or did that offended you or hurt you. Because I have to understand you. Now, I know in this world, we're in a very, very interesting space in our, in our culture in, in, in the world, right? Because it's easy to turn, take offense. Because people, if it's to a degree, it's subjective. You can take offense and you can say to me, oh, you're tall, you must be a rugby player. I'm like, oh, I'm a very skillful hockey player. <laughs> And I'm using that silly, extreme example to illustrate that offense can... But the, the idea is for us to just take a step back and go, okay, I offended you. Help me to understand, not me being a help me understand, and let's process this together so that I can be better. And possibly you saying to me, me, me saying, oh, I'm offended that you think I'm a rugby player. Maybe in me trying to explain to you I'm offended, I realize, yeah, this thing I should be a better job. It's that conversation that happens. Now, here, here's where it gets interesting. And I've, I've heard this many times before. People go, I mean, why can't, why can't we just, why can't we just take a chill pill? I mean, it's such a joke. You know who mostly says that? The insiders. This guy's like me. I'm the one who's going, it's a joke, man. Because the joke's hardly ever on me. You understand? The offense is very rarely towards me. There's very little you can say to me that offends me. Because I've always been in that prime position. So the same thing with you married, you know, like you're in the prime position. And so the minute your, your marriage is sort of like, or the fact that you're married is sort of like interrogated, you know, you're like, whoa. 
So, this is the new community. We equal in position before Christ. There's really nothing that's to be. We have freedom and confidence. And now we're just going to have to try and practice that. And you are going to offend people. Look at it. I'm going to say stuff, they're going to offend you. You're going to say stuff, they're going to offend you. We can approach each other as equal before Christ and talk it out. I think what we will start to see is the unity growing and growing and growing. And that then becomes this lighthouse in the cosmic space. All right, let's pray. Yeah, Lord, thank you um, for your word. Thank you that your word consistently sort of surprises us. You know, we think we, we get it and we think we understand it and then we push into a little bit more and you have something more to say to us. Man, I just thank you that, that you're giving us an opportunity as we form this church, as we grow together. You're giving us an opportunity to, to be this radical new or, or, or to be this lighthouse that reflects to the world this radical kingdom, this radical society that you're wanting to build. And we know that, that there's a lot of work that has to be done in all of us, given our history, our past. There is, there, the divisions are, are, are not just easily, you know, not just swept away simply because they're no longer on the law books. And we know that there are these, these things that we give primacy to by default. And we know that possibly they shouldn't be there because your word doesn't speak into those. And so when we have those conversations, they're difficult conversations. And it's easy, I suppose, to check out and say, well, I don't want to be part of a church where these difficult conversations are. I want to go elsewhere. I pray that you would just give us, and I'm including myself in this, the, the strength to stand in that disequilibrium, to stand in that tense space. And, 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 and I thank you that we can stand in that space because you love us. Because you have poured grace on towards us, we can be gracious to each other. And I pray that sometimes that's difficult to do. I, I find it difficult to be gracious towards people who are not like me, and people that irritate me, and people that, I, that have different worldviews or see scripture different to me, I, have a pro, I, have a, I struggle to show grace. May, we, may you, by your spirit, help us to be gracious to each other. Help us, Lord. Let, let this, this little church, this local church, have a cosmic impact. By your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.